0: MOT 3, give me Crucio on 2, 3, and 4. It's not line one, 6, 3. MOT 3, give me start line 2. 5, 1, 3. 3, 5, 1, 3, give me start line 1, Crucio on 7, and 9. 5, 1, 1, seven
1: and just 1, 1, 2. Hey, i will do something. I hate that. Super, uh, Line three, red avionics. Super ops. Line seven is code three for light in the gear handle.
0: Fuck. Hey, so I started a Patreon because, frankly, this stuff's getting expensive. Nothing will change the podcast or the blog if you don't subscribe, but if you want early access to episodes, monthly AMAs, episode shoutouts, voting on podcast topics, and all kinds of 20 years done gear, head over to patreon.com slash 20 years done. Okay, so today I'm joined by someone I served with for probably about six years. Does that sound about right? Or like four or five years, probably?
1: If, if you count our, our time at Luke. Uh, I do. Yeah, we were, we were separated by AMUs, <laughs> uh, but directly together at the 314th for a number, you know, I think two years or so.
0: Yep. So uh, why don't you just do a quick introduction of yourself?
1: Uh, I'm Mike Sissel. Um, I was in the Air Force for about 10 and a half years. Started off with, uh, like most people on the line, back at Luke in the 63rd. Ended up going to Korea, Uh, Italy afterwards. Got lucky with my fall on there. And then sucked back into Luke and then transferred over to Holloman. Right. That's roundabout it
0: for PCSing. And And what rank did you attain before you separated?
1: Staff sergeant.
0: Staff sergeant. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you were seven-level, engine-run... Yep, full-up. Uh, Blade Blend or Borescope? No. Yeah.
1: No, I never did that.
0: Uh, I didn't either, and I didn't want it because I saw how much <laughs> uh, extra work uh, people were mm-hmm. doing. So the reason I asked you on today is I want to mm-hmm. talk about maintenance culture. And we kind of corresponded right around episode 13, I think it was, with Scott Frisco if I'm remembering my episode numbers right, which I never do, so look for the Scott (laughs) Frisco episode on toxic leadership, I think it's 13, but it's right in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what really struck me, we talked about how, well initially you started talking to me after the first episode with Colonel Mora, Mm -hmm. and what I thought was really wild was, I had such a positive impression of the maintenance culture at Luke in 2013, when I was doing really well, and I had a really good leadership team. And you kind Mm -hmm. of intimated that that was one of the worst um, environments you had been in. Mm -hmm. And then we both went to Holloman around the same time. And Holloman was one of the worst cultures I had been in. And you said it was one of the best you had been in. Is that a, a pretty accurate summary? Yep. So what that kind of told me was Maintenance culture is really subjective, first of all. And second of all, it's really different for each person at the same place. Yep. So very often when I give critique and commentary, it may not resonate with a lot of people because they had drastically different experiences. Like, is that fair? Yeah,
1: I mean, it, it also depends. There's a lot of different variables. Like we talked about in Luke, you were in 308, I think. I was. I was at the 309th and i'm not sure but i'm confident that it was pretty infamous that 309th was just not healthy it wasn't never really doing that well running through lts left and right mm-hmm. so variables there that probably explain our different experiences right so
0: the topic of maintenance culture i guess maybe we should try to define it first and anytime i try to define these things as it turns out it's never an actual definition that i find anywhere it's more of a definition that i've kind of what it feels right to me. So I'm going to kind of say what maintenance culture means to me. And then I'm going to ask you if yours is different or the same, or, or if you want to like build upon it. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me, maintenance culture is just that nearly universal culture in aircraft maintenance. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it might even be cross service as well, but certainly within the fighter community, obviously my experience is pretty narrow to the F-16 community of it's this work sucks, You're going to get treated like you are expendable and you get treated like nothing you do is good enough because there's not enough of everything anyway and you constantly feel like you're being criticized for all the things you do wrong and not really recognized for the things you do right. And then also just a general, and I hate to use this word because it has a lot of stigma attached to it, but just a general culture of hazing, of indoctrination into a new sort of subculture and it's a bit brutal getting in and and then once you're in it's just such a high stakes environment that you're constantly on the threshold of feeling like you are going to kill someone crash a jet lose a stripe or lose your marriage like all of those things kind of combined Mm -hmm. creates this really sort of high stress environment. That's my broad look at, at maintenance culture. But I I would I'm really interested in what you would define it as, because I think it's really hard to define just by one person. So what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's definitely hard to define. Um just in it's such a broad scope. So like everything you said, yeah. But um I mean I guess the first thing I would uh, disagree with is that work sucked. like the work itself from my me personally. I enjoyed it. I I came to enjoy working on F-16s. I didn't plan on it. I came in open mechanical, hoping to learn something about diesels, do my four years and get out. But um, that's not how things went, obviously. But I came to love working on the plane. uh, Just being a mechanic was fun for me. And a lot of the people that I associated closely with, it was the same for them. It was never actually doing the work, you know what I mean? Or, you know, okay, we got to troubleshoot this or replace that, that sucked. It was the uh, decisions we didn't agree with or the, the constant, like you talked about, being working to the ground, that sucked. But um, around the enjoyment of work, I would say, you know, there's a brotherhood slash sisterhood, I guess, you know what I mean? Like a yeah, unification of enjoying doing mechanic work.
0: Well, and also, you know, I talked about it in my non arts episode, there's a certain bonds that are built when you're just in a, a really adverse sort of environment that's constantly mm-hmm. uh, testing you, and probably it's more than one individual can take. So it creates this need to form, you know, support through your coworkers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like if if this is this is you know, I didn't expect to have this epiphany, but it's it's almost like if maintenance culture wasn't bad, you wouldn't have the good friends and maintenance that you actually have because Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to rely on them and and build those bonds in order to kind of get through it. And I agree with the work sucks. I was probably, there's probably two things here. Uh, I was probably speaking too generally about work sucks because I enjoyed troubleshooting and I I eventually grew to enjoy working on the Mm -hmm. F-16. The work sucks element for me was much more, it felt like there was never enough to, to satisfy anyone. So you just felt this, this persistent inadequacy. But there's also a culture of suffrage that goes into aircraft maintenance. And that also probably goes back to the Nonner episode where there's almost a, a wallowing sort of, you're only gonna talk about how much work sucks because it's like a badge and then you get into a competition of well how many hours did you work well i worked uh, 11 i'm like well pfft. dude we worked 15 regularly and mop four uh downrange. so like uh it wasn't that bad And becomes this weird sort of ego challenge of my experience was somehow worse than your experience and it glorifies the suck and it glorifies the suffrage a little bit which might have been me manifesting that at the outset of this episode so I'm really appreciate that you pointed out that work doesn't always suck, mm-hmm. but I guess, uh, so when we were talking before, before the, uh, or offline, uh, a few months ago, you told me about a story when you were a supervisor and you had an interaction with an airman. Do you want to kind of retell that story here?
1: Sure. I mean, that was when we started, um, we started talking about, I guess, maintenance culture, but some of the abuse that goes along mm-hmm. inside of it. And, um, That was when I was basically explaining that looking back on my career in the Air Force and looking at some of the things that's been said on the podcast and just kind of realizing that, like, okay, I was a little bit, not a little bit, I was was pretty much a part of the problem when it comes to toxic leadership. I mean, Mm -hmm. at my level as an NCO, and I told you the story about, like, the most toxic thing I think I've done and felt bad about which was, um, there was this airman who, you know, was not, he wasn't the greatest airman. He wasn't the biggest screw up or fuck up, you know, but he just, you know, he didn't have his driver's license, so he couldn't get his, you know, flight line driver's license, couldn't get his cop court, you know what I mean? Made him basically unable to do his job in that aspect. And he just refused to do it. And then he just didn't pick up on a lot of, things that were required for him, you know, just the, the proactiveness, the mechanical capabilities, you know, not everybody's like you talked about, you weren't great at it at first. I wasn't great. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. The guy you're describing sounds like me, which I think is really interesting, but yeah, keep going.
1: But in the, in the 309 environment, it was very frustrating, right? Cause like we talked about, like I think I was one of two seven levels on shift if that, uh, you know, always never enough airmen to cover jets, and so this was a day shift thing, and um, this kid was next to me he was launching his aircraft, and I'm prepping mine right next to him, and I say I know he's he's waving his hand at me, and he's uh, he's pointing down in the ground, and about I don't know five six feet away from the intake, real one towards the intake is his is his mechanical pencil. Just I didn't know. it was just that day, just that kid, and I snapped. I go over there and I just grab the pencil and I'm just like, just yelling at him a little bit like putting him what the hell are you doing kind of thing and then tell him to report to me as soon as he launches his aircraft. Well, he comes over to me. I'm already dealing with my pilot and the walk around and stuff like this. And uh, yeah, I mean long story short, after yelling at him a little bit more, I basically tell him to stand at attention and put his nose against the uh, sunshade pole there. And my jet fails something, we have to step to a, a spare. And I just tell him to stay there till I come get him. And I went and launched my spare and um, I'm sitting there putting my tools away and thinking like, I'm forgetting about something. And I look over and there he is, still nose against the pole. And I'm um, oh, crap, immediately I overreacted. Right, I, I was messaging, you know, abuse versus like fair consequence right did the kid like fuck up yeah he shouldn't have anything in his pockets that's like taught in high school you don't have anything in your pockets while you're launching your aircraft did he deserved what he got though no and i told him so so i walked up to him i took him to the smoke pit and just trying to break down like okay man look i'm sorry i had you do that i overreacted do you understand what was wrong though and he was just like yeah i know i shouldn't have anything in my pockets i'm like all right yeah, You know what I mean? Like, he could have easily just grabbed the pencil himself, but, you know, the rules that you're taught, And he's probably, like me, I do have a fear of the intake. It's probably, yep. <laughs> you know, some people will just get right up next to it and don't care, but me, I just...
0: No, I can't. That that shit freaks me out.
1: Yeah. And I'm not I'm not that comfortable with it. So I get why he didn't want to. I wasn't going to allow the pencil to get sucked up, even though it's just a mechanical pencil. Like That's just mm, a risk now worth taking. So I picked it up, but... Basically, I had to talk with him to make him understand that I am overreacted, and I'd still feel bad about it. Like, thinking about it, mm-hmm. it's horrible. And um, what I didn't realize was that a flight chief was helping out a tow crew by riding brakes, and they towed by while he was standing there. And he immediately kind of pulled me into the office and asked me, what, what was that? And uh, so I explained to him what happened. And then the next day a roll call, that flight chief brought up the story and was, uh, I think this is what, you know, you found interesting about it was that he appreciated it. He said that, uh, old school things like that need to happen more often and, and, uh, kind of called me out and I'm sitting there and I'm, I have I've got this grin from ear to ear, but not because I'm happy about hearing this story, but because I'm just sitting there so cringeworthy, awkward, mm-hmm. like like. I'm embarrassed that I did this. I was hoping that it was going to be between me and this kid. And now like, obviously I knew people in the line probably saw it, but a flight chief saw it. And then not only saw it, but brought it up and roll call. And it was just like, Oh man, who that was like, you know, he was bringing up a good thing and here. I am thinking like, that's probably the most toxic thing I've ever done.
0: It seems like it still affects you too. Like your, your demeanor, is much different when you tell that story.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, we've told stories, you know, I've heard people on your show and you tell stories like the things that are happening to them. And I can tell stories about how things happen to me, but it's different when you realize that you were the toxic one, yep. you know, and, and you don't realize it in the moment necessarily. And so when you look back on it, you're like, man, I was the thing that I hate. It's like, a little bit of self-loathing going on there, but you try and learn from it and grow from it kind of
0: deal. Yeah. So I, I have a few questions about that story because so obviously when you're talking about launching out of spare, I mean, obviously spare launches usually go faster than, um, mm. you know, a regular launch that's timed for a taxi because that that's the one uh, pilot lagging, one or two pilots lagging behind. If it's a C model, or D model. and they're mm. just trying to get all their checks done, they're probably going to do half of what they can do for avionics on the way down to EOR type of deal and multitask. So, you know, I'm ballparking that that guy was probably standing there with, with his nose against the pole at attention for 20, 20 to 25 minutes. Is that probably fair?
1: I would I would estimate it a little bit more than that because he was already there while I was trying to launch out the first one. 30, 45 minutes maybe. Maybe, okay. no, I hope not, but 30, 45 minutes okay. at
0: least. And do you remember what time of year it was?
1: Yeah, it was summer.
0: So it was summer.
1: Yeah, it was summer.
0: Yeah, and I'm not trying to like pile on or or Mm -hmm. or peel out more sort of i mean and and there's not there's not gonna be any judgment here and i have a whole list of stories (laughs) i'm going to talk about right Mm -hmm. and i think it's important for us to do this a because it's i think probably one of the most important things that anybody that has been involved in aircraft main especially anybody serving now is recognizing your contribution to Mm. that culture Uh, and that begins with admitting the things that you do that is not right and not healthy Mm -hmm. because you're talking 45 minutes in phoenix in summer yeah that's a that's a that's a tough pill right Mm -hmm. you know very often when i reflect back on the stories that i'm really truly ashamed of i always kind of think like what if what if that person died or went on to kill themselves because of the things i said or or my behaviors Mm -hmm. you know how would you have felt if that kid like had a heat stroke in that moment right yeah and that's a distinct risk i mean like you're talking phoenix while jets are running Mm -hmm. middle of day shift in the summer and a guy standing there i mean we have people that fall out in formation just for standing at attention in a hangar I've said it before, I'm really grateful that no one died or killed themselves under my leadership, because when I look back at the sum of the harm that I committed, Mm
1: -hmm. that I
0: thought was the right thing to do for the Air Force, for the mission, and and for the safety of the pilot, I'm really lucky that nobody died. And I don't Mm -hmm. know how I would be able to function today if somebody had. So... What if your flight chief at that roll call had instead said, hey, I saw something yesterday and that's not how we do business? Like you talked Mm -hmm. about how you were being, and it sounds like he pointed you out and named you by name as a model Mm -hmm. to the other NCOs. And you, it almost like it rekindled or or exacerbated or amplified the shame and embarrassment you had for that behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. What if your flight chief had said, you know, hey, we had an NCO do this yesterday and that's just not how we do business and we mm-hmm. need to make sure we treat our airmen with respect. That would almost be a a chastisement of you, right?
1: Yeah.
0: But I imagine it would have been easier for you to digest, right? Because it would have closely more aligned with what you were feeling.
1: I, I wouldn't have been sitting there like uh, awkwardly grinning and, and then right. and, 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 like turning red and like putting my head down. You know what I mean? Like it would still be me sitting there with my head down, like, "Oh yeah, I know I fucked up," but at least it's not being like it's being acknowledged for what it was. Yeah. At least for what I thought it was. Yep. You know, but it was in that person's view misconstrued as something that needs to happen more often. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine like. Like I get. I try to understand like what he was trying to say. Like that, flight chief was just looking at uh, a flight of airmen who have, well, pretty big shoes to fill. And like I explained, like it was just that airman wasn't mechanically a kind, He just wasn't naturally filling the role. And um, there was just no space for that at that time. There was no room for error you're like talking about there was one to two seven levels on each shift. Everybody was just stretched thin. I think mean, it was seven levels. I don't know. I keep talking about like, how the seven levels have to catch and launch and do the inspections on jets because, like, when I was in the airman, that just didn't happen. Right. You know what I mean? There was the seven levels were in the truck unless there was maintenance going on. Yep. So I mean, when I say that, it just for me, it explains just the the extreme level of manning we have. To, because like when I would do the swing shift, it was uh, catch and recover an aircraft and then get to the maintenance. And now there's just another ball buster. But.
0: I'll probably break it down too, just because I think there's, I think the audience is growing enough where I have some non-maintenance people listening. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean... Oh,
1: crew chief lingo.
0: Uh, yeah, un- well, uh, and also un- just the unfortunate byproduct of, you know, I have the best podcast right now in the world. So it's just an audience that's growing. But... <laughs> You know the way a, a aircraft maintenance unit works is is on day shift. They're the ones that typically um, prepare the jet for flight every day. Basically, take off any protective covers, uh, greet a pilot when he comes out, and then there's launches some pre you know, some pre-flight checks that are done while the engine's running. The pilot has some avionics system checks to do. The gentlemen, or the the technicians on the ground are inspecting certain things that are required to be inspected to make sure that the jet is safe. And then after 30 to 60 minutes, depending on the the flying schedule, the jet will will leave the, the spot. And now that technician is free to do anything, you know, you to do what's necessary for the next hour hour and a half depending on how long the sortie is then the jet comes down and then the clock's kind of running of we need to get this jet refueled and we have to do an inspection on it uh you know a, a very I, mean, I don't know how many steps there are on a through flight it's probably a hundred plus plus. Um, and then there's also an, an inspection of the engine intake to make sure there's no damage to the blades or anything like that uh, and then it's usually flown again And the same thing, uh, 30 to 60 minute sort of launch procedures with inspections on the ground, the pilot doing his inspection flies for an hour, hour and a half and comes back. And usually depending on what the flying schedule looks like, either the swing shift person's gonna come in while the jet's in the air, usually on the cusp of coming down, or the swing shift person comes in right after the jet landed. And then the day shift person basically uh, has the aircraft forms, has documented all the discrepancies. And they review with their swing shift person, whoever that is, like, here's what the jet t- did today. Here's what appears to be coming due tonight. The jet should be down at this time or the jet landed at this time. And I've sensed it's landed. I've done X. Um, and then the swing shift person has to finish up whatever's necessary for that jet. Uh, you know, I'm assuming it's a flyer the next day because it's we fly everything all the time. And um, then they have to, uh, so finish the basic post-flight inspection, which is more detailed than the through-flight inspections, so probably 150 to 200 items. And then uh, the aircraft forms have to be basically organized for flight the next day. If they find anything during those inspections, it's typically if you find it, you fix it type of deal, depending on how severe it is, how experienced you are. But the general understanding is if you find it, you fix it. And I think I talked about that briefly in the maintenance culture episode, that with the find it, you fix it sort of, um, process it incentivizes not finding things because it makes your night miserable so there's like this internal dialogue that goes on when you find something where you kind of debate if you really found it because you think of how bad it's going to be and then thereafter on swing shift uh, you have to fix everything that either broke that day or was carryover broke from previous stuff or was scheduled to be broke because that's how aircraft maintenance works sometimes you schedule stuff to be broken and really what, what Mike was talking about as a seven level, as a, as a senior technician, it used to be, well, I shouldn't say used to be, cause it really ebbs and flows. Like when I was, a, mm-hmm. in like 2003, I was a seven level and I was crewing jets because we didn't have enough people. And then in like 2010, mm-hmm. we had just a huge abundance of people and seven levels. So ideally, your, your junior airmen are doing the heavy lifting of the launch, launch the jets, catch the jets, refuel the jets, inspect the jets, and, and, and organize the forms at the end of the night, whereas the staff sergeants slash what are referred to as seven levels are basically not attached to a flying jet that day. And that way they can work on fixing jets while the, the flying schedule is happening what that does is because it's not a batch and queue or a sequential sort of operation where a seven level has to take care of a jet for, you know, you're talking four hours out of the day is probably going to be, you know, on aircraft time. If it's a flyer, those four hours, that seven level, that staff sergeant can now use to get things fixed while the flying is happening. So when Mike's talking about, you know, I had to launch, I had to launch recover at the seven level a lot of people probably didn't pick up on the nuance of, he wasn't actually complaining about launching and recovering because the reality is that's actually a really easy day for a seven level. What he was saying was, while I was launching and recovering, the real maintenance wasn't happening, but I still had to do that real maintenance. So every minute Mm -hmm. I was doing launch and recovery is adding another minute to my night, is really what he's saying uh, when he says that. Is that, yeah, okay. You get like stressed out because, the longer you spend on that flyer is the less time you're getting your jets fixed and you know like i said it's adding a minute and it's and we're not talking like you're working up to 8 hours mm. uh, depending on the command climate depending on the local rules depending on a myriad of things um mm. you're very likely working you know that's every minute past your 8 hour mark up to your 12 hour mark and maybe a little bit longer depending on the circumstances mm. so i think it was also really important that you had apologized to that guy almost immediately yeah like, I think that shows maturity, especially for a staff sergeant.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I think maturity would have been to, you know not overreact in the moment, but uh, you know, I, I tried my best with that kind of things. Um, I come to find out later that a lot of my i don't know how to explain it, maybe less toxic actions were just not obvious to me. Mm-hmm. You know and uh, i think we talked about you know somebody had to point that out to me and that wasn't even until i was you know i had staff on for three years by then so i was at like eight at my eight seven eight year mark that's when uh hack, when mm-hmm. the hack pointed out that we were riding around in the seven level truck because that's uh, well that's why it was better for me at home you know we're like riding around in the sub level truck and we were uh checking out an airman before the first goes of the day and uh, he just let me know he's like hey man you are kind of a dick sometimes mm-hmm. and i'm like what is it not working I you and me are good but like just let me you know like especially when you talk to airmen you're a dick and i'm like no nah. i talk to them all the time nobody says anything to me nobody complains nothing i know of he's like well it's because you're a dick <laughs> like, all right fine um so we ran a little experiment we went up to a, a random airman uh Asked him what he was doing and uh, what he had to do for that day. And he uh, ended up explaining to me that he had the, um, the what was it, the 200-hour, I believe it was, JFS Start 2 check?
0: Right. That's 100-hour, I think. Is it 100-hour? Yeah, we all pencil whip it. So that's probably why you're unfamiliar <laughs> with uh, the interval.
1: Well, um, I don't know. It's an easy check. You know, I don't understand why you pencil whip it. You just watch the bottles go down and watch them go I'm down. I'm not saying
0: it's a hard check, but <laughs> your laughter suggests you understood that most people pencil whip it.
1: Yeah. I mean, there there, there were a few things that were penciled with. Um, So I asked him, you know, okay, just so you understand, like, why are you doing that check? And he goes, because so-and-so told me to. And I was just, okay, wrong answer. I'm going to explain to you why you're doing it. And I thought I was talking Mm. in a straightforward, but informative way. Right? I told him to go get his book. I told him about the Dash 6. I told him where you find the you know, scheduled inspections. Okay, look, this is where it tells you to do it. And this is why you do it. And then the steps to do it. And he's like, all right, cool. And he walked away. And I looked over at Hack and he's like, yep, yeah, you were a dick. <laughs> and I'm like, god damn. All right, fine. Told the kid to come back over and do what I did. And he's like, no. But you did talk to me like I was a five-year-old. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's a dick, man. Like, you could tell me. It's cool. And he's just like, yeah, I guess, yeah, you are a little dick. Yeah,
0: so you were such a dick, he was afraid To tell you you were a dick. I guess. Yeah, probably.
1: Most likely. But you know what I mean? Like, I I wasn't trying to be. I was trying to be serious because, like, that was a problem that I had suffered from. Like, I'm doing such and such, and I'm doing it this way because so-and-so told me. And that's gotten a lot of people in trouble. It's gotten me in trouble. I didn't want this kid to start his career with that mentality. So I was trying to be, like, as serious as possible, but as, like, listen to the information that I am sharing with you, please kind
0: of way just touching on the being a dick i think a lot of people are dicks and i think the reason why is because being a dick works in aircraft maintenance it's it is a a shortcut to performance Mm -hmm.
1: right you know i would say it's the easiest Mm -hmm. path to performance right Mm -hmm. not necessarily always the most productive or definitely not but it's it's (laughs) definitely the easiest it's the least amount Mm -hmm. of
0: effort Mm -hmm. and you typically get a mission-required performance
1: from it, Quickly, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So it's like, it's reinforced.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think it's also reinforced by things that you've talked about before, like toxic leadership, the lack of resources, right? Like, how patient are you going to be with somebody if you're already up to your nose and shit to deal with, you know? So I would think that's also a huge contributor, at least during my time. Not just for myself but other people that i saw like even that what happened you know those moments that like happened to me and i'm like wow man that guy's a fucking asshole
0: yep yeah yeah so i'm gonna tell a story about i don't think i've told this story before and this is a story that i'm it's hard to say i'm most ashamed of this story because i have mm-hmm. so many stories i'm ashamed of <laughs> in my career mm-hmm. and also it goes back to the scott frisco episode also like I think it's really important for any of the listeners to understand I was not the best supervisor and that's and and I'm being really soft-handed with myself like Mm -hmm. I was definitely toxic and it wasn't just that one instance with Scott Frisco that was the first airman that I was toxic to that I felt like I could get on the podcast and would be able to explain it well so Scott Frisco was not an isolated incident there was quite a bit of toxicity coming from me One time, when I was an expediter in the 308th, and it was bad, like it was so bad, the workload, and we were trying to fly, we we had dwindling people, and then we just, then the Air Force decided, we were gonna do an avionics upgrade to the aircraft, and we had to prep, you know, jets, and it, it, it was reported to the Pentagon if you were late, and the guy down at the mod dock would, pounce on any tardiness of the unit because that would be able to, he could send that up to his bosses and go to the Pentagon and go, the reason this program is behind is because the 308 failed to get a jet in on time on Wednesday, so they were always looking for us to screw up, so it was a super high pressure environment my supers were like all over the fucking spectrum of you know, micromanagers to laissez-faire and had no idea what they were doing, so it was like just, it felt like the fucking wheels were off and I was legitimately working. You know, I would come in at two in the afternoon and, and sometimes I would see my day shift expediter come in at seven o'clock in the morning. So you're talking, I don't know, was that 17 hour days or whatever? Certainly 14, 15s was the norm. Um, and that was like every, every, every day. And I remember one Friday, like there was a fucking planetary alignment and all the jets were good. We had no scheduled maintenance. We didn't have a reconfig. We didn't have a tire. It was literally day shift had already like pre-pulled some of the forms. We had one or two jets and like a tow job down to wilt. It was like the night. This was the night we were all gonna get to go home and recharge our batteries a little bit and see our family. And I'm sure people were already texting their spouses. Hey, it's gonna be an early night. And I'm driving around the truck and it was almost like I'm just doing laps for the sake of doing laps because there's nothing to check on and I had a guy and I'm not going to name his name and it's not because you know as we talked about before I I try not to name names of bad people I'm not going to name names because for this guy just because I think this story is kind of embarrassing for him and me but he was a guy that was a staff sergeant had exes and much like how I was as a young airman he just wasn't mechanically inclined. He, he wasn't good at working with his hands, uh, but he was a fantastic inspector. He did the best pre-flight inspections. I When I became a section chief, I actually tried to get him down to phase because I knew he'd be great in phase and he could pick up the hands-on maintenance tasks at a slower pace. And I thought he'd be, actually be a really, really good um, technician if he could just get out from the the pace of the, the flight line and he'd get some real training on hands-on stuff um he came he he came up to me when i was doing a lap, and he said hey sergeant mcgee the uh there's like this little teflon sort of teeth clamp thing on the cs on the constant speed drive main generator on the f-16 what people that may aircraft companies don't know like you can't you can't be anything missing or or loose in the in in the engine bay because it'll it, it can you know there was a instance in I think around 2000 2003 at Luke where a bolt had come off and it lodged in the throttle and the jet was stuck at a very high um, engine setting and the pilot had to basically run it out of gas and land with no engine and luckily he did um, so like it's very very serious anytime anything is missing in the cockpit or missing anywhere in the jet, cause it can bind up anything and crash the jet so he said that this um, Teflon piece and the hardware was not there and like that must have been really hard for him to do. It goes back to what we were talking about, the, the you fix it, you find it, but there's also the stress of when you know it's a good night, you don't mm-hmm. want to you don't want to be the guy that finds the thing. Don't be that guy, yeah. You don't you don't want to, right? You know that if you say out loud the thing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and anybody else knows it, that you're going to take time away from other people's, you know, other people's family time. And he was, and I had already had a reputation for being toxic and abusive and scary. And I know for a fact that he was intimidated by me. So he had all of these like psychological barriers and incentives not to come up to me. And he still did, which probably took a lot of grit to do. He flagged me down. He's like, Hey, sorry, McGee, this, uh, the, the clamp, the Teflon clamp for the main generator wires and some of the, Hardware appears to be missing in the engine bay. And I said, you know, I hate you, right? And I didn't say it like joking. It was, it was just deadpan. And like, I'm using the word hate. That's the word Nazis would use about Jewish people. That's the word that Pol Pot would use about, you know, the minorities in Cambodia. The people that exterminate people use the word hate. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's the word that I used in seriousness to a guy that worked for me and was just trying to make the jets safe. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that's not even the bad part of of the story. He said, uh, I know, I'm just glad you told me. And it was like, the hate was so palpable before this incident, that he was relieved that I admitted I hated him. I mean, there was, there, I, I wasn't putting me against, against the pole, but I was basically saying that, you know, he was a detriment, his existence was a detriment to my life. And that's like a, a fucking, that is a tough thing to say. And I have, I didn't apologize to him right away. And that's why I really complimented you on apologizing to that kid right away. Much of the things that I did. I didn't have the maturity or the situational awareness or the empathy to apologize very soon after I caused the harm. Later in my career, I got a little bit better would usually be hours later or the next day, but I typically would circle back around and apologize. Um, But for this individual, I ended up becoming the section chief. And then I told him, I want you to go figure out what job you want. Like this isn't, I'm not mad at you or anything, but you've been on the line for a long time, you've been struggling for a long time, and I want you to get a list of jobs and I'm gonna to try to get you into one of those jobs just to give you a break because you deserve it. And I think I've apologized to him three or four times, very explicitly of, you know, I'm ashamed that that was wrong. Very, Very similar to what I did here. But the reason I say that is because when you and I talked offline before, I kind of came up with this theory that Everyone in maintenance is walking around with a wad or a tight little ball of anger in them. And we're all just walking around with it because of the stress of the job, because the impossibility of the ask, because of abuses that we've received mm-hmm. you know, f- through our career. And we're just walking around this little ball of fucking rage, anger, and hate. And it, mm-hmm. and it eats at us, like it, mm-hmm. it, it affects us. And what you're doing is, you're waiting for someone to fuck up so you can dump a little bit of that rage anger and hate into them you can vent out some of your own psychologically cancerous sort of element and you're looking for an excuse to dump it into them Mm -hmm. that was very very fucking much what i did with that guy on that friday and when i look back at almost all of the times i felt ashamed of my behavior it was almost exclusively a i was mad at the situation i was mad at the resources i was mad at at the air force mismanagement which by the way like the this podcast probably very much is fueled by that angry little ball that is still inside me like the a fucking real high likelihood that was fucking going on right
1: i don't think anyone's noticed i, don't, I, don't think anyone.
0: <laughs> I mean i feel like i'm a little bit more productive now I, mm-hmm. I, it's a little less targeted it's a more of let's fix the problem that's creating this ball of hate uh, mm-hmm. so i can kind of pay it forward to make amends for the the harm that i caused that i'm detailing here because i got more shit i wrote down mm-hmm. but what happens is is that transfers and that transfers and that transfers and you create this whole culture where everybody is just angry and frustrated they're just passing this fucking toxic ball around mm-hmm. i mean like, I hadn't thought about that before we talked a few months ago, but the more I, it kind of sat with me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the more I realized, I think that's a really accurate representation of what's going on.
1: Yeah, you know, it's ironic you said you ran into the, st- the kid you told a story about. I ran into that kid at Holloman as well. He ended up coming to the 314th as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, our relationship hadn't improved. He, um, still by my own standards was hitting subpar marks and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, had, I had definitely toned myself down, I think, you know, um, but we still had uh, a couple of, uh, I don't know, let's say, moments, you know, where you know, like, I don't know, one time he was on the day shift and middle launches, I go inside and take a leak. He's sitting there at a the table, the only kid inside, sitting at the table on his phone, and I'm like, hey, man, I get it, you need to come inside take a break. But everybody's outside, you need to be outside. Get off your phone, go back outside. Go in, take a leak. I think I came inside and grabbed a rain seal or something like that because I had something in my back pocket. Pretty sure it was a rain seal. Because I came back out, and he's still sitting at the table. Yeah, snapped again, but I just take the rain seal, and I slammed the table to get his attention real quick. And like I was not talking to hear myself talk. Mm-hmm. Get outside. So that behavior that set me off in the beginning was still there. And I, I gave him, I thought a nice, like, Hey man, this is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. This is why it's wrong. Stop it. Moment. But he didn't, he didn't listen to that. It took the me slamming the table with a big rubber seal to grab his attention and say, move for him to like, (sighs) put his phone away go back
0: outside. That's interesting. And I wonder, well, it also goes back to the being a dick works, Mm -hmm. right? Certainly you gave him kind of a shot across the bow the first time. And that's the way Mm -hmm. I always phrased it. I'm going to ask directly but nicely the first time. And that Mm -hmm. is your one and only warning before the beast fucking comes out. And then I would feel justified of, well, I gave him a fucking warning. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how legitimate that is as far as felt like for me it was more of to excuse Mm -hmm. the behavior maybe i guess why do you think especially that guy in particular Mm -hmm. why do you think he didn't want to be why do you think he was inside and didn't want to be out on the line
1: i don't think he enjoyed being a crew chief I i don't think he wanted to be a crew chief when he came in i don't think he was particularly worried about getting good at it you know he was just going to do what he had to maybe feel out in six years. I don't know if he's still in. I haven't talked to him. I don't know. Yeah, I don't you know? know
0: either. And like, I, I don't have any ill will towards him. I think mm. like the main reason I don't connect with him on Facebook is I'm literally still ashamed of mm-hmm. that exchange in 2013. Yeah. 2012, I think it was. I think, it, I think for that guy in particular, I'm going to use him just as a model because I suspect there's probably more people out there that are like him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think he didn't want to be a crew chief. I agree. But I think it was also because like, if you notice that guy, when he, when he went on the line and he had to do things, he was afraid Mm -hmm. of signing something off. He was afraid of, you know, missing something on inspection. He was afraid of doing the task wrong. I mean, is that Mm -hmm. a pretty fair uh, assessment?
1: I mean, it's a good assumption.
0: Hey, it's me. Normally I don't add anything to the recording after it's done, but during editing I wanted to share something right here. I think it's important to understand the individual we're talking about who was reluctant to go on the line. That's the same person who I told that I hated him. I can't say that what I did in 2012 was still affecting this person, but I think very often the psychological harms committed in the everyday interactions on the flight line, I think they have long-term effects that in the end work against our own interests. Now back to the conversation.
1: Because I say that because he wasn't the only one. Like I, I was definitely like that. Mm-hmm. Even as I grew comfortable as a cell level, it was just I grew comfortable with the fear yep. that my name's going to be in that set of forms.
0: So for him, he might have been sitting inside because the idea of going out there was like giving him anxiety, or or he had a real apprehension about going out there. Maybe there was, mm-hmm. and then coupled with the fact that he was very frequently judged for being not to the standard of other seven levels, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like the, the judgment of the airmen of the other seven levels plus the self-doubt, plus the fear that if you do something wrong, you're gonna crash a jet. Like when you take all those things, in, look at the totality of those sort of elements, yeah. I can understand why he was sitting inside. And then when you gave him the warning very likely that warning didn't exceed the fear he felt on the line, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you came back through Mm -hmm. and you were a dick and -hmm. you were slamming shit around, now you became a scarier option Mm
1: -hmm.
0: than the line, right? Mm -hmm. And I suspect the reason why you were frustrated and angry is goes back to there's not enough people, not enough time, not -hmm. enough resources, and you feel like, there's more than you could ever possibly do is required. Mm-hmm. And this guy is sitting inside and he is a resource. And by him mm-hmm. not doing something, he's indirectly causing you more work, right?
1: Sort of. Yeah, basically. Um, I mean, there's also that, Like, I didn't feel it so much. That's why I say the three fourteenth was good for me. Cause I felt the group effort there, mm. you know, uh, and at least in, you know, the uh, crew chief's office, it felt like a group effort. Uh, most of the expediters were pretty good. And, and even if they weren't the greatest at being an expediter, they were decent to the people and just, you know, embraced the suck with everybody. And, you know, it was understanding. It was, you know, it was a lot of, well, a lot more morale yeah. than I had experienced on the line in a long time there. And um, to see somebody just kind of basically taking a shit on that, Well, it pissed
0: me off, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, you said you had to grow comfortable with maintenance, with the fear, with Mm -hmm. the apprehension. I think that's important, too. Like, that's a big part of the growth in aircraft maintenance is Mm -hmm. I have have yet to meet a young airman, either when I was an airman or 7-level or anything else, who wasn't afraid of the intake, Mm -hmm that started out, that wasn't afraid of the intake, that wasn't afraid of screwing up and killing the pilot crashing a jet, that Mm -hmm. wasn't afraid of being late and getting an LOR and or eventually going to prison for being late. I mean, that's not a real scenario, but as a young airman, you don't know, right? So there's also a lot of people just walking around afraid, like Mm -hmm. really afraid that they're going to ruin something, kill something, or go to jail. Mm -hmm. And Part of you know, growing aircraft maintenance is respecting that fear, figuring out what's legitimate and what's not. Like I still to this day would be apprehensive around the intake. I don't know how people overcome that fear, and I don't think you fucking should, by the way. Like no. that's a that's a big blender. And I'm good. chop your body up. Like yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You, I'll stay outside the Pac-Man. I'm
0: good. <laughs> you know, but part of it's also and I'm not sure if that fear ever goes away. I think it's more your tolerance for the fear goes up, right? Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, not everybody's career is the same and I I can't say that my experience is like, or the same, obviously I'm not the same as anybody else's, but I know that my experience has made me like overcoming the fear, like just took me getting put through the ringer a lot mm-hmm. and just basically getting shit on myself.
0: Because that builds confidence, right? When you when you do the tough thing and you come out mm-hmm. on the other side and you have successes, then mm-hmm. it lets you know that you do have what it takes to succeed and you have a little bit more faith in yourself, right?
1: Yeah, there's those there's the moments, but what I'm, what I'm talking about it to get over here. I mean, just the, the sheer amount of failure mm-hmm. that I felt like, okay, I can fail. It's going to suck. It can suck for a really long time but it's not going to kill me.
0: Yeah. I wonder how much of that fear also mm-hmm. feeds into that hate ball, hate anger ball that people carry around too. <laughs> well, I okay. mean, I'm not tr- I'm not trying to quote Yoda here, but fear <laughs> leads to hate and hate
1: <laughs> leads to the dark side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think I'd, it's basically on point. Yeah, I mean, it's, you hear, I've heard it a lot anyway, that anger isn't really, because you're actually angry it's because somewhere somewhere or somewhere down deep anyway you're you're sad yeah it's it's this sadness that's breeding all this anger and stuff and yeah i mean there could be some truth to that
0: yeah okay well we're out of time for today i know you you have a little bit of a tight schedule and i like i said i try to keep these episodes relatively short but i think this topic Sometimes when I do topics, like when I did micromanagement last week, I was like, why mm-hmm. the fuck haven't I done that topic sooner? It's such a good topic. Mm-hmm. I think me and Stromsky talked on it briefly with the compliance culture, talking about that, but I think there's going to be probably a few more episodes talking about maintenance, maintenance culture. You're, you're welcome to come back too, especially if you have any ideas, just shoot me a message and we can coordinate another episode. But any of the people that have been doing these episodes for a while with me, you people know who you are. If you also want to talk about your experience in maintenance culture... And if there's anything I said you agree with or disagree with, uh, you're welcome to come on. Um, but other than that, do you have any final thoughts, Mike?
1: Ah, wow, just it, it ended a lot faster than I thought it was.
0: Yeah, uh, like yeah. It, it's, uh, it's we're at like our 45-minute mark now.
1: Jeez. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's I'm trying to grasp the straws here. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, honestly, not, not even, I mean, we kind of plainly said everything, you know. Um,
0: well, I guess, so I guess I think we autopsied, maintenance culture fairly well Mm -hmm. but part of the autopsy is to identify the problem Mm -hmm. diagnose it okay Mm -hmm. so how would you fix it what do you you know let's say you had infinite resources infinite money and infinite time infinite people whatever Mm -hmm. what would be the what would be the way the ideology or do you have any idea how you would or what would make the culture of maintenance better
1: yeah I think regardless of other things you just try to give me here, I think the answer is always the same, which is what I think you and I have done, which is being able to take a step back and look at ourselves and uh, just try and do some personal growth, you know, because I know the Air Force tries to preach that, but it just becomes this mundane white noise in the background of resiliency and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and it's just, it's not what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, a little bit, but it's, it's not, it's not, at least for me, it didn't reach home, you know, cause it just felt like, like, okay, I'm hearing this message from the Air Force for what I'm hearing I'm doing right. So it, it, you need to like, re- try to, I would say anybody who's in the maintenance culture it needs to remove themselves from the maintenance culture. Cause that's what it took for me, mm. you know, taking a step outside that bubble broaden the spectrum a little bit to be able to see like, okay, how do I, how do I react at home? How does my family say I am? You know, when I go to a store, do I yell at a cashier for little to no reason or, you know what I mean? And think that's justified, you know, trying to use other examples of life to try and culminate some sort of personal growth. Yeah.
0: So you're hundred percent right especially when you talk about the resiliency piece, all, all of the Air Force's focus, as I've detailed in all of my suicide advocacy, is trying to teach the force to increase their tolerance to how shitty it is, mm-hmm. right? And very often, I'm rallying against the Air Force going, hey, you're the one making it shitty. Stop teaching us to tolerate the shittiness and make it less shitty. Mm-hmm. And you you essentially said the same thing here where you know, I, we've been talking to maintainers, maintainers have probably been mad at the air force because the air Mm -hmm. force is asking them to increase the resilience. But I think it's important to note that us as maintainers are also causing the harm to other people. So there's a Mm -hmm. personal responsibility of, you know, resiliency isn't the fix. Resiliency is the temp fix until you can get your culture healthy. Mm -hmm. And the way your culture gets healthy is because people like you, me, and literally everyone listening to this podcast that's in maintenance, like it's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but you're very likely contributing to the psychological harm of everybody else in maintenance and you're why they need to increase the resiliency. And so instead of increasing resiliency, the ask here is take stock of your own behavior, take stock of your contribution to the, that hate ball that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You can you can break the chain by not transferring it, which requires you to hold it, and then you're gonna have to do work on it yourself. And you know the idea is it's a pay it forward type of deal. Where if everyone in aircraft maintenance was no longer transferring that hate and that anger, and they were instead not requiring their people to tolerate their abuse with higher resilience, but instead stopped abusing, that would very much fix the problem in, in aircraft maintenance but that requires people to admit the horrible things they've done. And like I said, it would take me sometime days or, you know, back in 2012 months to apologize and admit, it's hard to admit that you're abusive, especially when the culture it's everywhere. So it's, it's normalized. You don't realize it's abusive goes back to being a Dick is easier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being a Dick is easier. It's the quickest way to get that, that thing done. But you're also, transferring some anger, transferring some hate, and you're being on a small scale toxic. And I'm not talking about like liberal college microaggression toxic. I'm talking about like you're dumping a little bit of that negativity, a little bit of that anger in somebody else and you're perpetuating it. And I suspect it probably grows as it travels too like a fucking plague. But mm. what I'm going to ask and what Mike asked is take stock of your own behavior, admit, mm. you know, be honest with yourself, be introspective, self-reflective, admit to yourself at least admit to yourself when you're doing something that's harmful and wrong and abusive, and then endeavor to not do it. Because really it starts with identifying that you're being abusive. Like that is the first and most crucial step. And then you can view your behavior through that le- that critical lens to yourself and it very well might make the culture better. Yeah. Do you have anything else, Mike? Because that was yeah. like a final thought, but then.
1: No, it's, that's pretty good. I, um... I, just, you know, I guess I would have to add that, uh, you know, for me, it took uh, like for the toxicity, like, it, you know, it took someone else to mirror that towards me. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there not going to be any self-growth until somebody did that. So hopefully, you know, you got somebody close to you, yeah. you can trust and they'll, you know, kind of reflect back to you on who you are and what you're doing.
0: Yep. Going back to talking about Hackworth, like if you see someone that is being that way, bring it up like that's that's the a good way too, because then you're getting you know i I imagine you had a good re- relationship with him, you mm-hmm. trusted his judgment, mm-hmm. and he had the courage to kind of speak up and mm-hmm. give you that honest sort of feedback yep. Um, so if you're one of those people, and what's interesting is unironically Hackworth was probably toxic at one point in his career as well, like I would be surprised if anybody in maintenance wasn't toxic at some point
1: yeah okay I, it's hard for me to believe i never saw him. He, <laughs> he was a teddy bear if you ask me but maybe
0: not that's true yeah. maybe not he is actually a pretty nice guy so maybe more people be like hackworth i'll, I'll say <laughs> but other than that i i really appreciate you coming on I, we kind of planned the short notice and like most of the conversations i didn't know where it was going to go and i really enjoyed it um and i hope uh the listeners really take it to heart other yeah. than that thank you mm-hmm. and adios